Section 5 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland Volume 3 From the Accession of Nicholas II Until the Present Day by Shimon Dubnov Translated by Israel Friedlander This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim Manikut Baisho, Portugal Chapter 32 The National Awakening Part 2 3. Spiritual Nationalism or National Cultural Autonomism Both political and spiritual Zionism have their roots in the same common ground, in the negation of the Gullus, in the conviction that outside of Palestine, in the lands of the diaspora, the Jewish people has no possibility of continuing its existence as normal national entity. Both political and spiritual Zionists have their eyes equally fixed upon Zion as the anchor of safety for Judaism, whether it be in its material or in its spiritual aspect. Neither doctrine had formulated a clear idea of future destinies of the Jewish diaspora, that is, of the destinies of the entire Jewry of the world, minus the section settled in Palestine. The political Zionists evaded the question as to the fate of the Jewish people in case their aspirations should not materialize and faithful to the motto proclaimed by Noldau were ready, as it were, to sentence the entire diaspora to death or to a life worse than death in the eventuality of the Palestinian Charter being refused. The cultural Zionists protested against this hypothetical Zionism, insisting that the diaspora would preserve its national vitality by mere contact with a small cultural center in Palestine. But how the tremendous bulk of the diaspora Jewry should be organized for a Jewish life on the spot, how it should be enabled to liberate itself from the political and cultural pressure of the environment, that question remained unanswered by both wings of Zionism. An answer to this question could not be found by considering merely the last stage of Jewish history, but by viewing the latter in all its phases, beginning with the ancient Greco-Roman and Eastern diaspora. Such an answer, based upon the entire Jewish past, was attempted by doctrine of spiritual nationalism, or more correctly, national cultural autonomism. Its fundamental principles have been formulated by the present writer in his letters concerning ancient and modern Judaism. The theory of autonomism takes as its point of departure the historic fact that at all times, with the exception of a few brief and partial deflections, the Jewish diaspora, taken as a whole, represented a national organism in which the absence of political or territorial unity was made up by the stronger cohesion of its spiritual and cultural ties and the greater intensity of its social and autonomous life. For many centuries, the entire culture of Judaism assumed a religious coloring and its communal autonomy was centered in the synagogue, which circumstance gave the modern champions of assimilation reason for thinking that the Jews were only a religious group scattered among various nations. 
it was a fatal error on the part of the Parisian Synhedrion convoked by Napoleon when, in its declaration of 1807, it proclaimed that Jewry today does not constitute the nation, an error which during the 19th century became an article of faith with the Jews of Western Europe. The latest development of the national movement has shown that Jewry, though scattered among various political states, is a nation full of vitality, and that the Jewish religion is only one of its functions. The Jewish national idea, secularized to a certain degree, is based on the assumption that all sections of the Jewish people, though divided in their political allegiance from one spiritual or historical cultural nation, which, like all national minority groups in countries with a mixed population, are in duty bound to fight in their several lands at one and the same time not only for their civil equality but also for their national rights, the autonomy of the Jewish community, school and language. What Jewish orthodoxy has for centuries stood for and still stands for under the guise of religious Judaism, progressive Jews should fight for under the banner of a national Jewish culture. The fate of universal Jewry ought not to be bound up with one single center. We should take into account the historic fact of multiplicity of centers of which those that have the largest numbers and can boast of the most genuine development of a national Jewish life are entitled to the hegemony of the Jewish people. In those lands in which civil emancipation has been achieved, the fight must go on for national emancipation, the recognition of the Jews as a nation which is entitled to a comprehensive communal and cultural autonomy. In Russia, the struggle must be carried on simultaneously for civil as well as national rights. Temporary setbacks in this struggle for a national existence ought not to discourage a nation which has endured the most terrible sufferings for centuries and has been able to preserve its spiritual freedom even in the midst of slavery. A certain measure of relief from these sufferings might be found in the old-time remedy of Jewish history, in the emigration from the lands of bondage to countries enjoying a greater amount of freedom. If in one of the centers the Jews are subject to prolonged persecution, then their gradual transplantation be it partial or complete, to another center offering more favorable opportunities in the struggle for existence ought to be attempted. Thus, during the last decades, the partial exodus of the Jews from Russia has helped to create an important Jewish center in North America and a smaller yet spiritually valuable center in Palestine. The latter may become a medium for the nationalization of the entire diaspora, but only then, when the diaspora itself will be organized directly upon the foundations of a cultural autonomy. Zionism, when reduced to its concrete possibilities, can form only one plank in the universal platform of the Jewish nation. The Palestinian center may strengthen the national development of the diaspora, but it does not constitute a conditio sine qua non for its autonomous existence. 
similar to spiritual Zionism, which had not succeeded in forming a special party and yet acted as a lever in the general Zionist movement. Autonomism, too, failed to find its embodiment in a party organization and yet became an integral part of the political national movement of Russian Jewry at the beginning of the present century. During the revolutionary struggle in Russia in 1905 and 1906, the demand for a national cultural autonomy was embodied in various degrees by nearly all Jewish parties and groups in their platforms, aside from and in addition to the demand for civil equality. 4. The Jewish Socialistic Movement On a parallel line with the nationalistic ideology, which formed a counterbalance to the assimilationist theory of Western Europe, the doctrine of socialism came gradually to the fore, emphasizing the principle of the class struggle in a more or less intimate connection with the national idea. The Jewish labor movement was born at the end of the 80s in Lithuania, in Vilna, and other cities. Its adherents were recruited from among the Jewish working men who were mainly engaged in handicrafts. In the 90s, the movement spread to the growing manufacturing centers of Lithuania and Poland, Bialystok, Smolgan, Warsaw, and Utsi. At first, the labor societies were established with a purely economic end in view, the organization of strikes for fewer working hours, increased wages, and the like. The leaders of these societies who were recruited from among the young Jewish intelligentsia, some of whom had received a university education abroad, endeavored to model the movement upon the pattern of the West European social democracy. The doctrine of Marxian socialism was applied, sometimes rather hastily, to the primitive stage of capitalistic production in the Pale of Settlement, where it was still very difficult to draw a line of demarcation between the poverty-stricken petty bourgeoisie forming the bulk of the Jewish population and the labor proletariat. In the second half of the 90s, the Jewish socialistic societies were drawn into the maelstrom of the Russian revolutionary movement. In 1897, all these societies were consolidated in the League of the Jewish Workingmen of Lithuania, Poland, and Russia, known under its abbreviated name as their Bund, the League. The first secret convention of the League took place in Vilna in the month of September, just one month after the first Zionist Congress at Basel. Various party centers were organized in Russia, clandestinely, of course. The party organ, published in the language of the Jewish masses in Yiddish, appeared abroad under the name of the Arbeiter Stimme. It is worthy of note that the formation of the Jewish Bund gave a year later the stimulus to the organization of the Russian Social Democratic Party, which united the formerly existing Russian labor societies. The Bund now joined the ranks of Russian Social Democracy as a separate autonomous group, although a number of Jewish social democrats who had adopted the viewpoint of assimilation or cosmopolitanism occupied a conspicuous place in the leadership of the Russian party at large. At subsequent conventions, 
the Bund endeavored to formulate its national program. At first, the tendency prevailed to limit the national element in the party platform to the use of the popular Jewish vernacular as a propaganda medium among the masses. At the third convention of the Bund, which took place in Kovno in 1899, the proposal to demand national equality for the Jews was voted down on the ground that the attention of the working men should be concentrated upon their class interests and ought not to be diverted in the direction of national aspirations. The fourth convention of the party, held in 1901, similarly declared that it was premature under the present circumstances to put forward the demand for a national autonomy for the Jews, although it realized at the same time that the concept of nationality is also applicable to the Jewish people. Only after prolonged debates in the party press and after a violent struggle with the centralizing tendencies of the Russian Social Democratic Party, the Convention of the Bund, held in 1905, adopted a resolution demanding national cultural autonomy in the domain of popular education as well as public rights for the language spoken by the Jews. In this wise, the national element gradually permeated even the doctrine of socialism, which, in its essence, had always been opposed to it and had placed in its stead the principle of internationalism and class interests. On the other hand, an attempt was made to inject the socialistic element into Zionism. Beginning with 1901, the Zion, the Zionistic working men, began to organize themselves in separate societies which proclaimed the territorial principle of Zionism as the only means of solving the Jewish social economic question, proceeding from the assumption that in the lands of the diaspora, the Jewish masses would always be barred from the domain of big industry. 5. The Revival of Jewish Letters This national revival of Russian Jewry found its expression also in Jewish literature. The periodical press, particularly in the Hebrew language, exhibited new life and vigor, and in other domains of literary productivity, various big talents made their appearance. As early as the end of the 80s, the two weekly Hebrew organs, the Ha Melitz in St. Petersburg and the Ha Zephira in Warsaw, were transformed into dailies. The Hebrew annuals pursuing purely literary and scientific aims, such as Ha Asif, the Harvest, Knesset Israel, the Community of Israel, Pardis, the Garden, and others, made way for the more energetic Ha Shiloah a monthly publication which reacted more rapidly on the questions of the day. This review, which is the equal of the leading periodicals of Europe, exercised considerable influence upon the views of the nationalist Jewish youth during the period of transition from the 19th to the 20th century. At one and the same time, considerable headway was made by the periodical press in the popular vernacular called jargon or Yiddish. The Yiddish's Volksblatt, a weekly publication, appeared in St. Petersburg from 1881 to 1890. The Hausfreund, the Yiddish Volksbibliothek, the Yiddish Bibliothek, edited by Spector, 
Shalom Aleichem, and Ayel Perez, respectively, were published in Warsaw and Kiev between 1888 and 1895. Their youth, a Yiddish weekly, was issued in Warsaw in 1899 and 1902. As for the Jewish press in the Russian language, the former mouthpiece of the progressive intelligentsia, the Voskot, which appeared at the same time as weekly and as a monthly publication, leaned more and more towards the national movement. Another Russian Jewish weekly, Budushnost, The Future, which appeared in St. Petersburg from 1899 to 1903, was Zionistic in tendency. In the theoretic branch of publicistic literature, the dominant figure during that period was Ahad Ham, whose articles endeavored to answer not only the exciting questions of the day, but also the perpetual problems of Judaism. His brief semi-philosophic, semi-publicistic essays under the general heading Perurim, Titbits, served as a lodestar for those who hoped to find the synthesis of Jews and men in modern Jewish nationalism. In a series of articles, he lashes slavery and freedom, were the assimilation of the emancipated Jews of Western Europe. He criticizes the theory of nationalism without Zion and the manifestations of Jewish Nizianism with its denial of the Jewish ethical doctrine. Not satisfied with mere criticism, he formulates in these articles the principles of a spiritual revival in the sense of nationalization of Jewish culture. The essays of Ahad Ham which were subsequently collected under the title Al-Parashat Derakim, At the Parting of the Ways, represents a profound and closely reasoned system of thought which is firmly grounded in historical-philosophical premises. In the forefront of publicists of a less theoretic turn of mind stood the talented Nahum Sokolov, the editor of Ha Sefira in Warsaw, who, after some vacillation, joined the ranks of political Zionism. In the borderland between journalism and literary criticism, the most conspicuous figures were David Frischmann and Mika Josef Berdichevsky. The former emphasized in his brilliant literary essays the necessity of a Europeanization of Judaism, while the latter championed the cause of Nizianism, protesting against the suppression of the man in the Jew and against the predominance of the spiritual over the material in the doctrine of Judaism. Berdichevsky is also the author of a number of sketches portraying the tragic split in the soul of the Jewish intellectual and the primitive harmoniousness of the old Hasidic world. In the realm of Jewish belles S.J. Abramovich, known under his pen name Mendele Moko Shvorim, the writer of the era of reforms, remained as theretofore the acknowledged leader. The creative energy of this author, who mastered with equal skill both the national and the popular language, attained to even greater heights during the period of the new Jewish martyrdom. His novel, Wunschfingel, The Wishing Ring, which was originally written in Yiddish and in its Hebrew version grew into a large volume, Be Emeka Baka, in the Valley of Tears, 1897-1907, constitute a great epic depicting Jewish life during the gloomy reign of Nicholas I 
and the era of enlightenment under Alexander II. A series of sketches marked by inimitable humor portrayed the disintegration of the old mode of life under the influence of the pogroms of 1881 and the subsequent emigration from Russia, Bimeharash, Instomides, and others. His autobiographical series, Beamin Haim, in those days, and his incomplete Shloim Reb Haim's Solomon the Son of Haim, revealed the power of rare psychological analysis. Avramovich's literary activity, extending over half a century, earned for him the title of grandfather of neo-Hebrew literature, the Zayde. He was privileged to witness the brilliant successes of his sons and grandsons, who came gradually to the fore, particularly in Yiddish literature. His younger contemporary, Isaac Leib Peretz, wrote during the first period of his literary endeavors clever stories portraying the life of the Jewish masses in Poland and distinguished by a powerful realism, often tinged with satire. His series, Reisebilder, Travel Pictures, and other sketches which were written mostly during the 90s. Later on, Perez leaned more and more towards modern literary symbolism, drawing his inspiration mostly from the mystic legend of the Hasidim. His series, Hasidish, which was subsequently expanded into two volumes under the title Volkstümliche Geschichten, Popular Stories, 1909. Towards the end of the century, the talent of the great Jewish humorist Salom Aleichem, as Ravinovitz, attains its full bloom. He was particularly successful in his mastery delineation of the Luftmensch type of the Pale of Settlement, who is constantly on the hunt for a piece of bread, who clutches at every possible profession and subsists on illusions. His sketch is Menachem Mendel. Using the popular vernacular with its characteristic idioms and witticism as its vehicles of expression, Salom Alarchem draws the picture of the little people of the Russian ghetto. His series, Kleine Menschelek, describes the joys and sorrows of their children, Masyofa Yiddish Kinder, stories for Jewish children, and puts into the mouth of the unsophisticated philosopher of the ghetto, Tevye, Tobias, the dairyman, the soul-storing epic of the great upheavals in this secluded little world. The series of sketches under the name of Tebe de Milhiga. To these big stars on the sky of Jewish belles lettres may be added the host of lesser luminaries who write in the rejuvenated ancient language of the nation or in the vernacular of the masses, the Yiddish. The literary revival manifested itself with particular vigor in the domain of poetry. At the beginning of the 90s, the voice of Judah Leib Gordon, the poet of the era of reforms, was silenced. He died in 1892. The singer of the national sorrow, Shimon Frug, who was carried away by the new ideas of Zionism, began to sing his Zionid in the Russian language, writing at the same time for the masses sonorous poems in Yiddish, though neither of them reveals the poetic charm of his older national elegies. New stars now glisten on the horizon. 
The middle of the 90s saw the ripening of the mighty talent of Haim Naaman Bialik, who brought the poetic forms of ancient Hebrew speech to unprecedented perfection. The magnificent form is matched by the wealth of content. The greatest creative power of Bialik is displayed in his treatment of national motives. Himself, the product of the rabbinical yeshiva and Beth HaMidrash, he sings of the spiritual beauty hidden behind these ancient and outwardly unattractive walls. In this antiquated citadel of Jewish spirit, where the cult of intellectual knighthood reigned supreme, where the spiritual shield was forged which preserved a nation of lambs amidst a horde of wolves, his wonderful poems, Imyes et Nafshika Ladat Ha Matmit, The Diligent Student and Others, the sufferings and humiliations heaped upon his people by its enemies bring the poet to the brink of despair, for he realizes that the old shield has been laid aside and no new shield has taken its place. He is filled with indignation at the indifference of the Jewish masses to the appeal for regeneration sounded by Zionism. Aken Hatzel Ha'am. Verily, the people are like grass and others. At a later stage, beginning with the Kishnip pogrom of 1903, Bialik's liar becomes more and more pessimistic, adopting the tone of wrathful rebuke and fury denunciation. In contradistinction to this singer of the national soul, another contemporary poet, Saul Chernikovsky, sounds the keynote of general human experience and the joy of living. He demonstratively prostrates himself before the statue of Apollo, Lenoka Pesel Apollo, before the statue of Apollo, offering to it the repentant prayer of the Jew for having denied the idea of beauty. He raves about Hellenism, the cult of joy and light, repudiating the one-sided spirituality and rigorism of old Judaism. Erotic motives, descriptions of nature, ballads, rustic ideals, such are the characteristic features of Chernikovsky's poetry which forms, as it were, a general human pendant to the poetry of Bialik, though yielding to it in the depth of literary conception. Both Bialik and Chernikovsky fructified the field of Jewish poetry, which in the beginning of the 20th century found a whole host of more or less talented cultivators most of them writing in the ancient national language, though in a rejuvenated form. Less rapid was the progress of Jewish scholarly endeavors. Yet, beginning with the 80s, even this domain is marked by an uninterrupted activity, which forms a continuation of the scientific achievements of the West. The 90s inaugurate systematic efforts directed toward the illustration of the history of the Jews in Russia and Poland. A series of scholarly researches, monographs, and general accounts of Jewish history, written mostly in Russian, make their appearance. Particularly noteworthy are the efforts to blaze new paths of Jewish historiography converging towards the national conception of Judaism. The Jewish historians of the 19th century in Western Europe, who were swayed by assimilationist ideas, 
viewed Jewish history primarily from the theological or spiritualistic point of view. The scholarly endeavors of Russian Jewry constitute an attempt to understand the social development of the diaspora as a peculiar, internally autonomous nation, which at all times has sought to preserve not only its religious treasures, but also the genuine complexion of its diversified national life. End of section 5